Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 199 of the National Security Law Podcast. We are still brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. It's Monday night. It's April 12th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, one of these days, the Mets are actually going to play like two days in a row. <laughs> what, what is up with these postponed games? They've played, uh, I think they've, they've played five games in 12 days to start the season. Maybe maybe it's a good chance for most of the lineup to warm up their bats because <laughs> <laughs> something's got to happen. Um, so um, before I forget, right, we want to make sure everyone knows we are all systems go. Thundercats are go for episode 200, the live show. Um, next, a week from tonight, Monday night, April 19th at 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central, 6.30 Mountain, 5.30 Pacific. Um, the way it's going to work is we are going to record as a live Zoom webinar. And so folks who want to watch live and heckle us in the Q&A box on Zoom, um, Bobby and I, I think, have both today tweeted um, links to the registration page. Um, and we will surely do that again in the next couple of days. So um, check out our Twitters. Um, to find the link to register. Um, and of course, we will also post it as a regular episode. So no, you know, you will not miss out other, on anything other than harassing us live um, if you if you just, you know, get your podcast the regular way next week. Come one, come all, make it your happy hour, get your drinks or other things going, whatever it is that you want to do, have dinner with us. We will be so glad for your company and we really hope that you'll engage a bunch. The, the yeah, we'll, have, we'll have an extensive uh, Ask Us Anything segment um, of the podcast next week. Good call. And I think uh, we should, I guess we won't be able with the format. We can't unmute people to, to let no, them. No, but we can we, we can read their questions, which at least allows us a, a modicum of censorship if, if, if things go haywire. <laughs> That's or, probably... or if, if Karen, as she's threatened, you know, tries to Zoom bomb the, oh, the situation. Karen, please. I mean, I may have to have a, a side channel conversation with her about that. Um, a side door. Um, so we have a few... Not very exciting. We do have some giveaways. We have some giveaways. They're they're not terribly exotic. Man, but, uh, you, you have a career in marketing. We have some not very exciting things to give away for free. I am managing expectations because if <laughs> we claimed it was exciting things to give away, then I assure you when we said what they were, people would say, that is not what I thought you were talking about. Um, a new car. <laughs> it's a vacation package. Pay your own way to Austin. We will meet you for a... We'll, uh, you, we'll, we'll buy you lunch <laughs> at, at a place of our choosing. The beer, Torchies. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, that sounds pretty good. Um, all right, add that to our list of giveaways. The the free trip to us. <laughs> you pay. We give you lunch. <laughs> um, so, um, oh, but before we before we you know figure out what we're going to do next week, we did we did have to have an episode. Well, we sort of we sort of boxed ourselves into a corner on this one. Like we this is the the, the episode that we couldn't avoid. Yeah, we kind of got bailed out a little bit by the emergence of the first thing we'll talk about, which is um, this is a little engineered to create a good topic, but I think it actually is a good teaching topic. So. Politico released this uh, DOJ memo from that it was actually written in the, the very last minutes of the Trump administration. There was a set of comments responding legally and policy wise to draft legislation that was actually they were responding to the version from the last Congress, but it's since been reintroduced. The Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, which is in existence both in the House and the Senate, we'll we'll talk about what this statute would do if enacted as it currently stands? And what did DOJ say about its the earlier version of it to raise at least objections then? And we'll, we'll sort of speculate. It's a great exercise 
frankly, in coming to grips with the question of, all right, so if you're a, a member of Congress who really wants to do something about domestic terrorism, uh, what are some of the things that are currently bouncing around? And, and on this show, we've previously talked about various sort of changes to substantive federal criminal law. We've talked a little bit about changes to uh, the investigative aspects of the legal framework. Um, this is a little bit different, and these are real deal bills that have at least a little bit of momentum behind them, maybe a lot of momentum behind them. And so this will be kind of fun to, to walk through what they provide and and to take note of where DOJ, at least under the, uh, the last administration, had objections. I actually think a lot of these objections would would probably stick. Um, we'll see. So we got that. Um, what else do we have to talk about? Oh, on the subject of terrorism, we will segue directly from that domestic terrorism focus to a National Security Division roundup where we're going to take note of some recent developments in, in some Islamic State material support prosecutions, uh, a couple of big developments over the past week. In, in one sense, they're, they're very typical cases. There's nothing really dramatic or novel about them. On the other hand, that's actually what's interesting because they are emblematic of what one gets investigatively if one decides to try to treat domestic terrorism very much as Al-Qaeda had been treated, as the Islamic State has been treated. And the story there is about the role of undercover officers and cooperating witnesses. So we'll, we've, we've hit that theme before. We'll hit on it again by talking about these cases. There's also an interesting sort of uh, chemical weapons type that sounds different than it turns out to be, but there's a, there's a chemical weapons charge that DOJ uh, brought. We'll talk about that case as well. And then, Steve, I think we'll need to, t- we'll have to go down to Guantanamo because it's a week. And we've got a D.C. Circuit ruling in Altamir, which is, well, it, it's full of fascinating stuff. Uh, so we'll talk about the Altamir ruling and this uh, sustaining member topic of, of military judges. judges. Ju- military judges looking for work. And, and in this case, attorney advisors also looking for work. Apparently uh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's all relative, I guess. And then um, we'll, we'll take note of some of the new nominations in the, that pertain to cybersecurity and a little bit of a SCOTUS roundup as well, because, because some peeps out there have been very uh, unkind to you, Steve, uh, in characterizing some of your important work. On the I'm, I, I'm, less, I'm less worried about the obnoxious personal attacks than I am about the, um, to my mind, uh, completely lawless Supreme Court decision that was issued on Friday night that radically changed free exercise doctrine. And my goal, my goal, Bobby, is to convince you that even if you think the First Amendment answer is correct, that the court violated its own precedents by doing what it did. Right. I have not read it, so I am a so this popular Rasa. You have a chance. This is, this is Steve Steve springing stuff on Bobby again. Yes, Although, to be, fair, to be fair, I put this one in the email. You, you did, but I, I and to be fair, I told you I was not going to have the chance to read it, but I will still do my best to resist your wiles and in, and uh, we'll see. I'll, That's I, will my open, I will be open for persuasion with the big caveat that I've not read it. Um, okay, but, but, then, but we'll, I, you know this is this is obviously not a free exercise podcast. I think the larger point is the the procedural point that I want to really sort of drive home is something that could matter in national security litigation. And so, insofar as we sort of visit the Supreme Court from time to time for procedural nerdistry, I think this is pretty important. I think our pattern has been that I'm I'm pretty open in pretty likely to agree with you on the procedural aspects because I am a proceduralist like yourself and an institutionalist in some respects. Um, 
I think probably you and I don't have the same free exercise clause views, but that's okay. As you say, that's not the flavor of this show. Although, um, just just really quickly though, I mean, this is gonna and this is gonna segue, this is gonna dovetail nicely with what we discussed later. Um, my free exercise clause views are actually fairly complicated and not sort of um, how do I say um, classically like straight line liberal progressive. And so one of the things that's remarkable about all of these attacks on me over the last week is that people are assuming a heck of a lot about my views on the free exercise clause with no evidence and what? where, well, of course, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I 100% with you there. And I wonder if, I, I like the way you you put it, liberal bash progressive. And I wonder if part of what's going on here is the uh, is another manifestation of where liberal and progressive don't necessarily mean the same thing. Yep. I think that's, a, so one, I think that's exactly right. But two, I also think part of what's going on here is that folks who are not proceduralists can't understand how proceduralists might actually think sometimes that procedure is at least as important as substance. Well, it, exactly. And we'll talk about this more in a minute, but I'll just yeah. say that uh, proceduralism is, I think I think many would say, it's like somewhat of an inherently conservative position to take. Indeed. Uh, because it, it's all about staying with the rules. All right. So yeah. we'll come Conserv- back to that. It's our institutional conservatism, not political conservatism. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, yep. All right. Speaking of institutional conservatism, that seems like a perfect segue to the DOJ memo. Does it? I don't know if I agree with that. Um, You don't think it's classic DOJ? I guess I'd agree that the major – we'll unpack this in a minute, but (laughs) just to react off the cuff. Yeah, I think it's right. It it certainly reflects reflects exactly what you'd expect, I think, any DOJ and executive branch position to be. So before we say what DOJ had to say about these bills – I'll unpack the bills because I I hadn't read them until recently. No reason you should have, unless you work for Representative Brad Schneider or Senator Durbin, in which case, I hope you did read these because there's your lead sponsors. Um, the bill in the House is H.R. 350, and in the Senate, it's Senate uh, it's S-963. Um, they have slightly different titles. There's, there's a slight difference. There's an additional section in the uh, in the Senate version, but the the heart of the matter is roughly the same bill as as we've seen in the last Congress. So here here are the moving parts. Uh, first of all, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act or the DTPA. The DTPA first would require creation of formal domestic terrorism focus units at the Justice Department National Security Division. So. The, the practical impact would be to take the counterterrorism section and it would be formally split up where there's a domestic and an international section within that existing body. Whereas the status quo is those responsibilities are both already there, but they're not formally hived off from one another. Um, and we'll come back to that when we get to the objections. FBI, which has a you know, terrorism section, um, would likewise have to have a domestic terrorism specific subunit. And interestingly, they, they they bring in DHS a lot in this bill and DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which has come up on this show before, Steve. Um, Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is an analytic, not a collecting unit. It's an analytic part of the intelligence community. Um, it would have to have a domestic terrorism focused formal section as well. Uh, there's a 10-year sunset on it. Not real sure why they put it all the way out at 10 years, uh, but nonetheless, there, there is a sunset. Um, there's a requirement that everyone who works just in those new sections for those three agencies, all of them would have to have annual anti-bias training. Um, 
So that's that's the first bit, the organizational redesign being mandated. Second, uh, every six months, uh, the three entities just mentioned, FBI, DOJ, and DHS, would need to uh, report to Congress on various things. There's there's a lot of stuff there about quantitative reporting on incidents, uh, assessments, preliminary investigations, full investigations, convictions, resulting sentences, uh, weapons uh, seizures, and then specifically, and this is kind of interesting, a specific requirement to substantively analyze the domestic terrorism threat posed by white supremacists and neo-Nazis in particular, uh, not others, those. Um, There's a call for review of hate crimes that might also have been eligible for categorization as domestic terrorism, but might not have received that, which I think is very smartly looks to the the under-theorized and and underdefined overlap between those two categories and tries to get at more quantitative clarity there. Um, So let's see. Oh, and then the key element, uh, based on that quantitative assessment of domestic terrorism incidents, whatever subcategories, and there's a call for these to be subcategorized, whichever subcategory of domestic terrorism, let's say neo-Nazi domestic terrorism, turns out to be the most frequent under the DTPA, that would be categorized as a, quote, greatest threat subcategory. And uh, a controversial part of the bill, it would be mandated by statute that that object becomes an enforcement priority for DOJ. Um, now, there's more. There's a requirement of there's – there's a codification of the existing domestic terrorism executive committee structure that DOJ has to kind of pull together some – various officials to serve a coordinating function. So this gets locked in by statute, including locking in what the membership is comprised of. There's no, there's nothing like really dramatic about who's identified as categories of membership, but it would lock it in. Uh, they got to meet four times a year for coordination purposes. Uh, FBI, DOJ, and DHS would have to review all their terrorism-relating training programs that any of them may provide to federal, state, local, or tribal partners. Uh, to ensure both that the greatest threat category mentioned before is properly covered and specifically to address how white supremacist and neo-Nazi infiltration of the aforementioned organizations may be covered. And then last, there's a domestic uh, a requirement of an interagency task force to study uh, the infiltration issue with white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups vis-a-vis the military and federal law enforcement with a one-year deadline for DOJ, FBI, and DHS to team up with the Pentagon to produce that study. Um, the, the Senate bill is only different in that it adds on a, uh, a requirement of an expedited Justice Department review of the category of COVID-19-related hate crimes and a corresponding directive for the Attorney General to team up with Health and Human Services to produce guidance on how people should I say people, so the agencies should talk about the pandemic in ways that are not racially discriminatory. So there's, they're the bills that are pending. And we've now seen this document. Uh, The document has language at the top. There you can hear Russell, Russell, paper, paper. (laughs) The header header is- Bobby is now holding a document. I got an actual document because I print things. Informal, comma, not officially cleared, comments, on the Department of Justice on the predecessor bill from the last. By, by the way, I print things as a good as a good contender for episode title. Ooh, nice. 
especially because <laughs> I, I don't. You, you're good. No, I'm just, I'm just lazy. I just, I, I will say, just to digress for a second. Um, obviously, the vast majority of what I'm reading is digital only. But if I've, if I've got to parse something, if I've got to look at statutory text or notes for class or something, if I really need to concentrate, uh, you may have seen me walking around the neighborhood. My preferred method is to walk around the neighborhood, uh, pen in hand hard copy in hand, marking things up. And so I can't, there's a learning that takes place that's not replicated online. Or so I can't walk and write, but I agree with you, except that I have learned to basically replicate that experience by annotating PDFs. Um, and so I have, I have gotten very handy with the Acrobat Pro app on my iPad at basically doing what I would do with a document on paper, but then having a digital copy of it. Hmm. All right, good pro tip. Speaking of pro tips, let me actually do a, a bleg to our, our listeners. If any of you have used the Remarkable 2 product. The what? Says, have you heard of this? It's really no. interesting. So this like pops up in my Instagram feed all the time because it's it knows me and it knows I might like something like this. It's a it it looks it's a kind of a super thin lightweight pad for handwritten notes that get digitized. But the key is oh oh I don't I've seen that. It, it creates yep. the it has yep. the sensation apparently pretty accurately they claim. Pretty accurately reproduces the sensation of like the haptic. There's like a haptic for like putting pen on paper. Yes, exactly. And so it's got just that, just that, whatever that synchronone is. That's the feeling of, of of friction or resistance you get. So if any of y'all have used this thing, it doesn't look cheap, and I'm probably too cheap to buy something like that. But if it's if you love it, I'd love to hear from you. What's your, you what's your, it, I'd really love what's, to hear from you. What's your FDA for if you're not traveling? I know, but I, hey, I don't spend the tax dollars of the people of Texas carelessly. And if Nor I, but like, I mean, I think technology that could advance your your professional. Listen, your request. You the the amount of work you do for the for the University of Texas, I think, would only be facilitated by technology that makes your life more efficient. True that. Um, so if anybody knows that this is a plus, <laughs> I might get one. If you if you know that this is a complete marketing thing, I've fallen for. Please warn me off. All right, so we come at last. All right, to back to the memo. memo. Yeah, so uh, you know, what did you think? Is it is it entirely unobjectionable? It's got it's got comma arguments. It's got some policy arguments. What stood out to you, Steve? Just the mere the fact that it exists, right? I mean, the fact <laughs> that like no, I mean, I mean that. I mean, I think you know, this would be a topic where I where I could see the political case for DOJ just keeping its head down, um, right, and sort of not taking a position one way or the other because no matter what you say, you're going to piss somebody off. And I actually think that, like, I, I don't listen. I don't agree with everything that's in the memo, but I, I, I do largely, I think, agree with the thrust of it, um, which is that, like, you know, current law is adequate. The issue is the issues are elsewhere. But I don't know. What was your reaction? Um, so actually, I thought the constitutional. Basically, I agreed with almost everything in their memo. Now, again, it, at least is titled whoever wrote this, and we don't know who, as far as I know. Um, was trying to make clear, like they don't have any official permission for this, and I'm not clear on how this actually ended up in right. in Politico's hands. So I don't think I am. I don't want to give them any criticism along the lines of how dare they sort of throw this out there. This could just be one official sort of way of keeping notes, hoping one day this would be the official position. But they they lead with the constitutional objection to Congress micromanaging the intra unit organizational structure by locking in by statute that there be distinctive domestic terrorism entities. Uh, and they also criticize that on policy grounds. I think they're, I think they're right on both counts. I, I don't think, I think it's at least constitutionally questionable 
for Congress to mandate this particular internal structuring of the prosecutorial function in particular and the investigative function in particular. Um, and, and I definitely think it's a bad idea. I think it, there's, it seems to be solving a problem that I don't think is shown to exist. This, I guess the idea must be some thought that, well, the terrorism groups within FBI and DOJ, which is where it counts, also DHS, but especially DOJ, National Security Division, and FBI counterterrorism, somehow they don't care enough. But I think there's plenty of evidence that they do, in fact, care a ton. Even under the Trump administration, they cared a ton. There seems to be a surging of resources and efforts. Lord knows we have we have an, a growing array of charges out of the insurrection. So I, I think it's doing something constitutionally dubious that's not needed, but it's also not quite as interesting as some of the other stuff. Um, it looks like the memo on the new terrorism offenses stuff is taking yeah. aim at something that I think is not in the new bills, which is good. And it shows that there is a learning process that people don't just come up with one plan for what these bills should look like and never listen to criticisms. I think they've taken that out of there. Um, the uh, the other stuff, let's see, what else jumped out? Um, give me a second here. I took a few notes. It, oh, by the way, any new listeners, you may be surprised to know this. You may not be surprised at all. <laughs> this is how we prepare. We turn on the recording and we start talking. Um, yeah, maybe that's enough to say. Um, I, the, the memo criticizes the calling out specific. There's, there's one thing I de- definitely don't agree with. I think, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. The memo says the parts of the reporting obligation that specifically call for reporting and assessment defined with reference to white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups. Let me read what it says here because I think it's kind of kind of stunning. It claims that this is uh, possibly unconstitutional and certainly unwise to do that. Um, quote, as to the requirements of section da-da-da-da, The FBI does not investigate individuals based solely on adherence to an ideology or association with the group. Therefore, we would not be able to fulfill the requirement set forth, that is to say, um, to report specifically on assessing the white supremacist and neo-Nazi threat. Now, I don't think that follows at all. Uh, obviously, it's it's. So wait, is, is the premise even true? I mean, if the group is like that's, it's completely wrong to say that you can't form any assessment or report on a group defined ideologically or with reference to speech or association. It is it is very true what they say that you can't open an investigation based on that First Amendment protected activity. Absolutely. And they don't, I think. But much more importantly, that doesn't mean that there aren't investigations, including enterprise investigations of entities who knows, maybe the Proud Boys, maybe you know some of these other groups, Adam Waffen, who knows. Um, there's no question that you can actually take cognizance of an otherwise properly initiated investigation of domestic organizations if they are criminal organizations that that warrant an enterprise investigation. I, I just also feel the need to also remind folks that it's also not true that you can never open an investigation based on membership in an organization. If the organization is a designated FTO, you sure as heck can. Right. 
but but remember the the, the caveat they're throwing out no, there no. is on First Amendment protected grounds and so right no right no but my whole point is that is that there are some groups membership in which is not protected by the First Amendment true but none of them would be domestic groups no 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 I, I'm just I'm just saying like, that as a, I, I don't want folks to walk away with an overstatement that is incorrect insofar as it's an overstatement gotcha so so th- there's another place in the memo where they make the same objection. And uh, it, it's almost clear in this other part. Unfortunately, I can't find it because my notes are, as I described earlier, done while I'm walking around, usually trying to find a coffee shop I can walk to. You know. So anyways, the takeaway is that the memo took the position that it actually is categorically inappropriate to require reporting or other anything framed with reference to white supremacy or neo-Nazi groups. And I think that's just flat wrong at least insofar as you're not directing them to just go out and investigate the category, but rather saying insofar as you have lawfully and constitutionally initiated criminal investigations, or for that matter, intelligence investigations, and if they encompass these categories, report to us on this. Does that sound right to you? Or do you think that there's actually something sort of constitutionally verboten about actually framing even reporting requirements in those particular terms? I don't think there is. I think there are norms about about sort of pushing up against that line. But I can't imagine any existing First Amendment doctrine that would push back against that. Of course, as we're going to talk about later in the episode, the Supreme Court doesn't see much beholden to existing First Amendment doctrine, but that's another matter. Yeah, so you say. Now, let's test our own instincts here. What if it was we flip all the parties in power around and the statute wants reporting on, you know, inevitably and it says Antifa and let's just say we want reporting on BLM or, or right. some other and I'm I mean, not, the is, let me let me I better say this. I'm not trying an equivalency. No, right. I'm just trying to instigate discussion. I know and, and, and I think you know I would find that of politically offensive but not necessarily constitutionally so right that you know infer I mean the, again, it's not. It, we're not talking about initiation. We're not talking about searches. We're not talking about surveillance. We're just talking about reporting. And I think that's, to me, you know, I wouldn't like. I, I would be strongly against such a bill, but I don't think it would be because I would believe it violated the First Amendment. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's the uh, sort of rundown. And this segues pretty. Uh, sorry, Bobby. And, and by the way, that's not like. It is. I think too many arguments these days are couched as if it's not unconstitutional, it's fine. Right. And I think this is like, you know, we ought to be comfortable, you know, much more often with the notion that things can be both perfectly constitutional and really bad ideas. There's no question that we use legal framing as a crutch to avoid harder policy analysis and moral analysis all too often. Yep. Um, All right. So National Security Division Roundup flows pretty much. So uh, the DOJ National Security Division, we often keep tabs on just the the flow of updates on so. some of the major prosecutions that get reported out of DOJ. And, and here we have, uh, over the past week or so, a pair of very typical Islamic State-related material support cases. We, we have had for years now pretty steady flow of attempt and conspiracy charges involving attempting to provide either oneself or some kind of aid as material support to the Islamic State or conspiring with others. Um, And and both these cases illustrate one of the most common things you see in these cases, which is that the the flow of events is typically some public-facing social media posting by the eventual defendant uh, in some ways, maybe glorifying the Islamic State or something like that, or, or su- expressing support, 
And then that is enough to get them on the radar, it appears. And then one way or another, either an undercover officer or a cooperating witness gets into the picture, gets in contact with that person or persons and starts engaging them. Next thing you know, you have some steps that are coming to fruition and the uh, FBI sweeps in, arrests them, and you've got the material support charges. And and that's the thing to underscore here, that a big part of how domestically implemented counterterrorism law enforcement works it's the interesting part. It's not so much the social media uh, observation that's to be expected. It's the use of the cooperating informant or the undercover officer to go back and forth in ways that raise interesting questions in almost every case about like, what would have happened? What would have happened if there had been no law enforcement asset interacting with that person? And I think it's, Steve, what do you think? I think it's fair to say that, so we'll never know. You don't do controlled experiments in this context, but in some of these instances, the person might have gone on to cause indirectly or directly very serious harm. And in some of the instances, surely they would have kept uh, posting what they posted and saying and maybe thinking terrible things, but wouldn't have actually directly harmed or indirectly harmed somebody. And thus, the the kind of the classic framing of the minority report problem you can't know what the future is really going to hold. And these are interventions that take place very early in the process. And some people applaud this saying like, yeah, you got to, you got to have more false, you'll have more false positives, but you'll avoid false negatives. And that's what you need in the terrorism setting. This is a, this is a 20 year old topic. At least what's important is for those who are newly interested in terrorism investigations and enforcement because they're interested in seeing a more aggressive approach taken with purely domestic groups, know what you're asking for. Because this, whether you realize it or not, yep. is at least where it a ends. big part yep. of what you're asking for. Yep. Yep. And, and, that may be, and that may be a bug or it may be a feature. I'm not saying it's one or the other, but be mindful. Well, I mean, I think, I think, so I think it's both depending on context. Um, but I also think that like, you know, I mean, this is, I think where there's a little more daylight between the two of us, which is we agree that it's very, we agree that it's a very slippery slope once you, once you blur the foreign domestic line in this context. Um, I think it's just, you know, I'm, I'm, I am of the view um, that even the foreign part of like that, even within the definition of foreign, there's an awful lot of stuff that we all think of as more domestic, but that's a, that's another topic for another time. Fair enough. I'll give a quick note on what these cases actually are. So one is us versus Shimenti, an Illinois, Illinois man who had tried to send cell phones to the Islamic state back in 2017 and also tried to help what he thought he was doing was helping a person travel to Syria to join ISIS. He got, uh, 13 and a half years following jury conviction on conspiracy to provide material support, plus a false statement to the FBI. And this, again, he had, he had social media posted in a public facing way. And from there, they somehow or other got a cooperating witness uh, involved in the investigation posing as an Islamic State facilitator. There was also a co-defendant who got 12 years following his jury conviction, but there they didn't also have the charge for false statements to the FBI. So it looks like here we're seeing that a baseline of about 12 years as the going rate for that sort of thing if you don't plead out. Then there's U.S. versus James Bradley and Arwa Mathana. It's a husband and wife, uh, newlyweds, in fact, uh, arrested at Newark on March 31st. And of course, Steve, when I see someone's arrested in Newark, 
uh, attempting to get to Syria to join the Islamic State, I assume the airport. But no, 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 no. They were they were thinking, they were mindful that might not work. And so they were going to go by cargo ship to Yemen and they were arrested on the gangplank, which must have been quite a scene. On the, um, on the, computer, remove plank. <laughs> Wait, what's, what is that from? Star Trek Generations. Oh, wow. You're so right. That's that the retract- holiday plank. scene where they're doing the whole yes. like. What war, war, worst promotion ceremony? That's <laughs> retract plank number one, not remove plank. <laughs> we will have words about Picard season two soon. But first. We will actually. Um, so. Just a few more notes on this one. So there had been some recorded conversations apparently where uh, Bradley and Mathana were talking about wanting to carry out an attack on people at West Point or else an area, New York City area university with ROTC. Uh, And then another tidbit that's in the press release is that Mathana waived her Miranda rights upon arrest. And uh, in, I guess, an illustration of why that's not very smart, uh, reportedly stated to the FBI that she was very happy to fight and kill Americans. So that, I think, ultimately is there, you, will, there will be a conviction in this case. Do, do you ever have the talk with your students about Miranda? Um, that does not come up in the classes I teach. What do you? Uh... It doesn't in mine either, but I try every semester to find one excuse. I mean, I guess it does in Kamala because I teach Dickerson. Um, where the Supreme Court held that it was unconstitutional for Congress to try to overrule Miranda. Okay. Um, so I, I actually try at least once a semester to basically tell my students, if you learn nothing else from me this semester, right, if you ever believe that you are in a custodial situation with law enforcement and they start asking you questions, you know, the only thing you say is, I won't answer any questions until I can speak to a lawyer, and then you shut the F up. Yep. Um, you know, so uh, factoid, my 1L criminal law professor was Dershowitz. Ah. And, uh, and I well recall- That is a factoid. That is a fact. Right? He told oh, hey, me. My, my 1L con law professor was Jed Rubenfeld. So we can go, you know, we. we <laughs> there's, Ooh, since, there's, sensitive there's some bad in the news. Sensitive topics in the news. Um, uh, Dersh told us all that uh, we were entitled in the event of arrest, we were all entitled one time to place our call to him. Uh, and I've always wondered if any of my classmates uh, took him up on that. Um, no comment on whether that would have been the right call to but make. Just, but, but for our non-lawyer listeners, like you might be wondering if it's a right to remain silent, why don't I just remain silent? And the answer is because thanks to a 2015 Supreme Court decision, you haven't actually asserted your right to remain silent by remaining silent. Rather, you must affirmatively assert your right to remain silent by speaking, and then you shut up. So then one more case from the roundup. And Sorry, this I, 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 I had, had to, I had to, you know. That was, that was great. Um, good advice. We are not providing legal advice on this program. However, just call a lawyer. Just call a lawyer and shut up. Um, and then there's this one. Um, it's not a terrorism case as such, certainly. But I think whenever anything relating to uh, deadly chemicals enter the picture, it's kind of interesting. And so I guess that's why, well, it's certainly why National Security Division had it. This was a person who was, it was a domestic violence situation where this person wanted to kill his ex, we think. Um, but it's interesting because it illustrates the ongoing challenge that comes with the diffusion of technology that's making it easier to use the internet to buy illicit things. Um, United States versus Jason Sicer, he was arrested, a Missouri man arrested on Tuesday. He had been attempting to acquire what was characterized without explanation as a chemical weapon from a dark web source, paid in Bitcoin. One way or the other, the FBI knew what was happening and arranged a controlled delivery of an inert substance. Now, maybe this was an FBI undercover operation all along. Maybe there was a tip from a seller. 
maybe there was monitoring. I think it's most likely there was monitoring of a dark web marketplace and they were able to spot this. In any event, when they got in there, not only did he have the newly acquired wasn't what he thought it was, but also he already had cadmium arsenide, cadmium metal, and hydrochloric acid. And just it's just a disturbing reminder as, uh, as Ben Wittes and Gabby Blum put it in their awesome, awesome book from several years back, Future of Violence, um, there are an array of rapidly developing technologies that put ever more dangerous things into the hands of ever more people. And we're living in a really dangerous time. Um, okay, that's enough terrorism. Well, no, it's not enough terrorism-related stuff, Steve, because we got to go. We got to head south to Guantanamo by way of the D.C. Circuit. Um, the Altamir decision. More fun with Gitmo Judges. What happened now? All right. So Nashwan Altamir um, is apparently the proper legal name of a Guantanamo detainee who we often have referred to as Hadi Al-Iraqi. Yeah. Um, and who is, um, I, we, I like to think of it, it's like it's the forgotten one of the pending Gitmo military commission trials, right? Like we talk a lot about the 9-11 trial. We talk a lot about Nashiri. We've talked in recent episodes a fair amount about the new Indonesia case. And then there's Al-Iraqi or Al-Tamir, depending upon your preferences, um, who I have to say, I mean, just sort of taking a step back, of all of the four pending cases, this one makes the least sense to me in the sense that, like, he's not an especially big fish. Like, the charges against him are for fairly small fry stuff in context, especially compared to the 9-11 attacks, the USS Cole bombing, the, you know, 2002-2003 Jakarta and Bali bombings. I mean, but be that as it may. Um so Altamir brought a claim that should sound fairly familiar, um, which is that um, one of the judges who had presided over a series of sort of early pretrial proceedings in his case was at the time he was presiding over the case seeking employment in the Justice Department. I feel like I've heard this story before. A familiar ring to it, a deja vu. Um, and, and, and just to just to sort of, you know, drive the point home. I mean, the reason why this happens, at least in a big part, right, is because um, 06s, right, senior military officers who are judges are basically in a terminal rank. And so usually their next gig after being a military judge is whatever they can get in, you know, the in the outside world. And there's a there's a there's a, a hiring preference um, in DOJ for you know folks with prior military and or judicial experience so they actually like are at the top of the food chain for those jobs anyway um among other things one might say well then maybe we ought to be thinking differently about who the trial judges are in the guantanamo military commissions but that's another matter um anyway so in in ray al nashiri three um a couple years ago i can't believe it was a couple years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> in 2019, I, I, when I saw the citation in the in Tatel's opinion to, to Alan Sherry 3 and it said 2019, I was like, what? <laughs> um, anyway. Bleak house. So as, as folks might remember in the Sherry, um, the D.C. Circuit basically said, yes, this is an un, unavoidable conflict of interest um, and basically like wiped out, you know, almost three years worth of pretrial rulings in the Sherry's case. Well, the government has, I think, finally caught somewhat wise to this problem. And so in this case, the government had already agreed um, that Al-Tamir should be allowed to identify individual rulings by that judge that he does not believe should be binding upon the new trial judge. And he doesn't have to, there's no burden of proof. He doesn't have to show anything. Just if he identifies the ruling, it's out. 
Um, and one of the things that the DC Circuit holds in Altamir is that is an adequate remedy, that, that the common law remedy of mandamus is not necessary because any sort of the extent to to whatever extent that conflict of interest might taint the proceedings, the fact that Altamir can just point to individual rulings and say this one shouldn't count um, absolves the taint. Um, which you know, I, I have to say, I don't know if it were de novo review if I would totally buy that, but it's mandamus, and we've talked before about how the standard for mandamus, at least in the DC Circuit, is a pretty high one. So it that doesn't strike me as an especially um, problematic uh, uh, result from Judge Tatel. Well, and it, it helps explain the, the otherwise extremely diverse array of judges that are all on the same page in this Indeed, one. Right. So the, right, the panel is Chief Judge Trinivasan, Judge Tatel, and Judge Rao, and they're unanimous on both the on both issues. So on, on the judge, they say, um, you know, and I think this is important, like let's not lose sight. They say, yes, this is a problem, but there's no relief here because the government has already provided a remedy for it. So, you know, not exactly, uh, not exactly another glorious day for the military commissions at the DC Circuit, even though the government won the case. So, what about? But what about the attorney advisor? Yes. So that that position, you're not. He didn't have a attorney client relationship. Uh, attorney advisor Blackwood was basically doing the same thing, like looking for the next job, uh, hadn't been disclosed properly, etc. And the, and the answer from the court, as you mentioned earlier, was basically like, yeah, the attorney advisor position is basically glorified paralegal. It's it's legal services, but it's not legal representation. And so kind of a no harm, no foul analysis. Is that how you saw it? Yep, exactly so. Okay. Um, so my, my only thing I would add about that, I'll just, I'll quibble a bit with the Al-Hadi's significance. Well, on one hand, it, it's certainly true that it's not, he's not charged in relation to a, a famous instance or to famous individuals for that matter, like Kambali or Al-Qaeda. On the other hand, in many ways, he's, he's more paradigmatically appropriate for a military commission than perhaps almost all the others, because the claim is that he was a ground commander for Al-Qaeda uh, organized armed units in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and that as as part of his command structure, he he directed no quarter in the event of any capture, the captives to be killed, and in addition, uh, orchestrating and planning intentional attacks on civilians. So to me, it's like, okay, there's the place, there's the physical location where, to the greatest extent, we have consensus, even amongst critics, that, okay, there's a state of armed conflict or has been a state of armed conflict, certainly on the Afghanistan side at least arguably spilling over at times into the Pakistan side. Um, but it seems like to me, that's like, if you're going to have a military commission at all, and can agree that it can charge law of war violations. If it's true, then that's a pretty good fit. Um, but but isn't there, I mean, isn't there also a standalone conspiracy charge in his case? Uh, there, there may be, I, I don't have the particulars of all it's the been a while. I mean, it's been a while since I looked at the charging, the, the charges, but I, I thought that like, I mean, to the notion that this is like a conventional, um, military commission prosecution. I had thought there was also an inchoate conspiracy charge in his case that's going to eventually provoke the question of, you know, is inchoate conspiracy constitutionally within the jurisdiction of military? So this may be dated. I actually, I had pulled up a post from our old pal, Wells Bennett. Wells, if you're out there, hello, Wells. When Wells. He, when he was still managing editor at Lawfare, and he has a summary of the charging document in 2013, and he specifies, um, here's what he says, this is quoting Wells, on first glance, the charges seemingly include more established war crimes, denying quarter, perfidy, attacking protected property, 
and know it's not included material support or freestanding conspiracy counts to be sure there is a theory of vicarious liability in play, apparently, with respect to the perfidy charge, attempted perfidy, and attacking protected property counts. The charge sheet says Al-Iraqi is liable as a principal and co-conspirator. So there, there may, and maybe this has been superseded by events, although I suspect not. If, My memory may just be hazy on this. But well, it could be that it's there as to subsidiary charges in that respect. But it sounds like, you know, at, at the end of the day, if the claim is there's a military commander who orders his troops to deny quarter and to attack civilians, that's a war crime. Uh, listen, again, the, my point is not that the I don't mean to I don't mean to sort of get into a jurisdictional debate. I just mean that like the the offenses, you know, the, the optics are different. But but leave it be that as it may. I mean, you want to talk about the 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 other the legal the 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 clerk. Um, I had nothing else to say about the clerk actually. Like I actually think the DC Circuit's right. Like I think the legal advisor that raises far different and less significant concerns to me than the judge, because, you know, to, to whatever extent the legal advisor is part of the proceeding and is helping and is assisting, it's the judge who's making the decisions. And For so, sure. you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm with Tatel, I think all the way across the board on this one. You know, it's almost like you ought to find a way for the uh, presiding officer to somehow have life tenure and, and like have that be their job like all the time and preside over the whole case and listen I, I had I've suggested I mean, is, there, in, is there a way to do that it, so so even without having civilian judges hear these cases I mean there was a there was a long there there was a day long session on reforming the military commissions at a point in the past I will not specify to preserve Chatham House rules um, but but where I put on the table the specter of having the Congress and the military agree to a fixed terminal position of military commission judge where you would have an 06 with tenure protection, right? Where, where it would be the same pool of officers that we're using for this, these positions now, but where you'd give them additional independence protections to, 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 to give them more independence and therefore to give the proceedings more, at least appearance of, 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 of impartiality. Um, and even that was like you know too controversial to move forward on. So. That's wild. Well, I mean, man, a hard—that's a hard slot to fill, I guess. It, it sounds like what they've de facto done with poor Mark Martin's. Uh, how long has he been chief prosecutor now? I mean, he has to be. I don't know what the record is for longest time in service as a as a one star, but <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it, it's an interesting question. It's I don't know anything about how the benefits work, but hopefully he's going to get some benefit from this because. Uh, Mark Martins, who's wonderful, has been in that position for so long now. It's amazing. All right. Um, uh, let's take a quick spin past the cybersecurity elements of the government as a change of pace. Um, there's uh, There's been some debate going on for the past couple of months about what will happen, if, if anything, with the national cyber director position um, that the uh, National Defense Authorization Act required. And, and there's been just debate around the corner about whether it's a good idea now that the Biden administration actually cares about coordinating cybersecurity policy and has put the extremely talented Ann Newberger in charge as a senior uh, special assistant to the president type uh, National Security Council staffer uh, responsible for this and, and seemingly was perhaps leaning towards leaving this position unfilled. And nope, they've named Chris Inglis, former NSA 
superstar, widely respected, um, someone who knows Ann well. They've worked closely together from back in their mutual time at NSA. And so if you were trying to design a situation in which you could find a way to get by with having a Senate-confirmed national cyber director official who's got responsibilities ostensibly for orchestrating um, sort of all aspects of national policy, yet you also had a National Security Council staff member who's who's the president's own selection uh, with certain aspects of that coordinating uh, function as well and wanting that not to clash too much. Ann and Chris looks like a pretty good combination. So that's that's pretty great news. Um, I'm, I'm impressed with how they figured out how to move forward on that. Now, over the long term, will this make sense? I would guess that over the long term, once the national cyber director position has been actually filled with the Senate's confirmation and they've begun staffing out, it's I think it's entitled to have up to 75 or so employees. Once that bureaucracy is in place, I think that going forward, the NSC coordinating position that Ann currently occupies and which has been deeply influential until recently, over time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lose leverage relative to the NCD position, but we'll see. Um, all right. Uh, so Steve, uh, before we wrap up and move on to Mets and other frivolous things, uh, take us, take us to the, uh, controversies that have been engendered by, uh, the, the intersection of religious liberty and your shadow docket work. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get sort of too far into the weeds, but there was a really, really significant, um, Shadow Docket ruling. Um, and a quick reminder for people who have not been following, Shadow Docket is... Sorry. So the Shadow Docket is a term that Chicago law professor Will Bode invented in 2015 to describe basically everything the Supreme Court does other than its big merits decisions. Um, so the order docket. And you know the order docket is primarily anodyne stuff nobody cares about, but there's been this remarkable uptick in the last four or five years of the court using these orders to do more and more stuff beyond ordinary case management, um, including orders that change the status quo, whether by staying a lower court injunction pending appeal, by overturning a lower court stay of an execution, things like that. Just so, so I want to make sure I've got the baseline. So historically, there was always a ton of stuff happening on the shadow docket with these orders, but almost invariably, it didn't alter the status quo for the litigants below. It, it would move the case along in various ways, but it wasn't in any way merits reflecting. Right. It was that started. Like it, it didn't never happen. That's a terrible sentence. It, it happened, but it happened, you know, seldom enough that you could count on one hand how many times a term it happened. I would argue um, that it didn't never happen is a great sentence and has a different sense than it has happened. I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, you know, um, but that's a good short title. <laughs> um sorry I, really no, I love it so yeah. okay so anyway um but one of the things that we've seen on the shadow docket um this term that we had not seen before this term um is um more is issuances of emergency injunctions and the difference between emergency injunctions and stays is more than just semantic Wait, so I, I thought you had documented yes that there was a ton more meaningfully different shadow docket activity over the past three to four years yep. with the Trump Justice Department really leaning into that venue to try to get 
impactful things done at the court as quickly as it could. That's exactly right. But but what's interesting is um, when the government is the party seeking the emergency relief, it doesn't need an injunction. Um, right. And so like, right, the government's almost never going to need an injunction against a private party. It's usually the other way around. So the one form of emergency relief that actually did not expand during the Trump administration was injunctions pending appeal. And what do I mean by an injunction pending appeal? So say that you're challenging a state or federal policy and you're seeking an injunction, you're asking for an order that blocks the policy. And that's the relief you're seeking in the whole case. And the district court or the trial court says, nope, not giving it to you. You're going to appeal that decision, which you're allowed to do immediately. But Bobby, the appeal is going to take time. And so there's a procedure under both the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure and the Supreme Court's practice for something called an injunction pending appeal, which is when the appellate court reaches out and temporarily enjoins the state or federal government from from enforcing the policy while deciding whether you're entitled to an injunction on the merits. Um, these are ve- these are or at least historically have been very rare. Um, and the rarity, I think, was really well summarized by um, Justice Scalia in 1986 in an opinion he wrote while as a circuit justice, um, so an in-chambers opinion. Um, and what Scalia said is that um, the reason why this is different from a stay is because the statutory authorities are different, right? Stays have a special statute that Congress enacted to specifically give the Supreme Court the power to stay um, lower court proceedings as part of its supervisory authority over lower courts. Injunctions are not part of the court supervisory authority over lower courts. Injunctions are only under the so-called All Writs Act. Um, And the reason why that's a big deal, Bobby, is because, as we saw during the Trump administration, um, you don't need to convince the court that you're right under existing law to get a stay. You just need to convince the court that they're going to rule for you on the merits eventually to get a stay, right? And so that's – the Trump administration repeatedly – was able to obtain stays of lower court injunctions um, by convincing the justices that they were likely to prevail on the merits. Um, an injunction, in contrast, requires a much higher showing, ah, which that's is the gravamen of it. The standard. Yes, yes, the injunction requires that you show that the right to relief was already quote indisputably clear unquote, and that these are extreme and exigent circumstances, which of course is a subjective standard and blah blah blah. So here's how we get to Friday night. So the, the case the court decided Friday night, which is called Tandon versus Newsom, um, is a challenge to California's restrictions on in-home gatherings. California says um, you can't have members of more than three different families in any private home during COVID, um, right, as a way of sort of trying to, trying to accommodate, Bobby, the notion that they don't want to have large house parties, but there are also some family units that are quite large. And so they didn't want to have it be a numerical cap. They had it as a number of families. Um, and there, are, there were these plaintiffs who sued, claiming that insofar as that cap um, infringes upon Bible study, right, and other forms of private religious worship in the home, um, it violates the free exercise clause. Um, now, under the sort of current, and maybe not for long in this world, precedent of Employment Division versus Smith, right, the standard's actually a pretty favorable one for the government. The question is, um, you know, if, if the law is neutral, as to say, if the law treats religious and non-religious activity equally, um, then we don't. It, it will it will pass muster, no matter the burden it imposes on religious practice, if it is you know rationally related to a legitimate government interest. And this one was neutral because it just says it doesn't matter. I don't I don't know why you're meeting. I just know that three families. No, no, no more than three families in any house. 
Um, right, which at, at least not, not worship, just house. just drive it home. Right. Okay, sounds neutral. Okay, so here's the problem. Um, some of the justices, in separate opinions, have been gravitating toward this idea that our colleague Doug Laycock um, labeled in 1990 the most favored nation theory of the free exercise clause. Um, and the idea behind the most favored nation theory is that it is still impermissible discrimination um, if the government is tr- is if the if the general regulation accepts any secular businesses or any secular conduct without making comparable exceptions for religious activity. And so some of the justices in separate opinions in recent months have said, well, um, there are, you know, you can have members of more than three families in a hair salon or a bicycle store or a bowling alley or a movie or a bowling alley. Yeah. Right. And so now you and I and everybody else might dispute whether that's comparable to having them in, in your home. That's not the point. The point is that under the court's existing doctrine, right, that's not the standard, or at least it wasn't until Friday night. So, so Friday night, the court issues another injunction. This is the seventh one they've issued this term in a COVID religious liberty case. Bobby, they hadn't issued an injunction pending appeal before this term since 2015. So how many, how many of these have been California cases? Five have been California and two have been New York. Um, and they've all been since Justice Barrett ascended the bench in November, right? I mean, this is, and indeed the big, the biggest ones, the New York one and, and Friday's one were five, four, right? With the chief dissenting. But here's the problem. Like I don't, the, the, the fight over whether most favored nation is a good reading of the free exercise clause is way above my pay grade. All I want to say for now is that the court's own precedents say that you're not to say that they can't, they literally lack the, the, the power to issue an injunction in cases in which the right to relief is not indisputably clear. And all, whatever else you might think about the merits of, you know, this free, most favored nation theory, the free exercise clause, um, no prior opinion of the Supreme Court established it. So how in the world could the right that the court is enforcing through the injunction have been indisputably clear. The short four-page procuring opinion, Bobby never says. Is so? Was this unanimous, or was it five-four? Five-four. Okay. It was five-four with the chief dissenting, um, and with Justice Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor dissenting. Kagan wrote a dissent that Breyer and Sotomayor joined. The chief did not write. He chief just noted his dissent. Yeah, and, um, do you, and so do you take it? He's taking the institutionalist position that. In this procedural framework, relief is not appropriate. Hands are basically tied. Yeah, I mean, I would also say, I mean, the chief, again, I am not an expert on the free exercise clause. I do think that of all of the conservative justices, the chief has been the least, um, how do I say, aggressive um, in pushing back against Smith, right? And so it's also possible that this is a combination of, you know, substantive skepticism and procedural formalism would you go so far as to say it's no longer the chief's court oh i've said it publicly this is this is it's it is abundantly clear from what's happened this term that the median vote on most issues not all but that the median vote on most issues is now justice kavanaugh um and we've already seen bobby three of three merits opinions in argued cases um where it was kavanaugh and the chief who joined the three progressive justices to form a majority, or at least to form? In one case, it was unanimous, but there was a it was five to four on the rationale. So, um, so Brett can can tip the scales, but John can't do it on his own. Well, and indeed, and Justice Kavanaugh, I, I just you know, 
uh, of all the, on this particular question, the most favored nation theory of the First Amendment, um, he's all the way there. I mean, he he's one of the justices who had previously written separately to endorse it. Uh-huh. But the, so so I just want to say so procedure like whatever folks think of the merits here, the decision was procedurally lawless because the court literally lacked the power to issue an injunction under those circumstances. And the only way that that could be wrong is if you could somehow ex- prove or demonstrate that the most favored nation theory was already what the uh, you know was already a majority opinion there's no like the 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 procurium opinion bobby itself gets this principally from separate opinions from concurrences um which of course is not an example of indisputably clear just to test to make sure i'm tracking your theory of why this was lawless yes. you're saying it, it would not be good enough. let's say they accurate the five justices accurately counted heads and said you know what on the merits, we all already are committed. It's, it is going to shift in this direction. You're saying in, until they've actually done that in a merits holding, it's insufficient as a basis for this stage injunctive relief. That's for, for an injunction pending appeal, because the whole point of an injunction pending appeal is that it's meant to um, it's meant to deal with lower courts who are flouting clearly established. I don't like clearly established, but I, who are I, flouting I, settled I law. I see it. So, and, and so it's not enough to say like, look, we know where this is going. We've, that's, we've state, lost. That, that's what's happening on the state side. And of course, even that's problematic because as I've suggested elsewhere, the, you know, the, that analysis used to rely much more heavily on a balance of the equities that has largely fallen out. But, but this is, you know, the point that I want folks to take away is even if like, I've been on this bandwagon against the shadow docket for a while, um, there are folks who are not that exercised about stays. And I understand that because ultimately it's a merits call by the justices. Injunctions are different, and they're and they're different. It's different because the statute's different. And this is not me saying this. This is Justice Scalia. This is Justice then Justice Rehnquist. This is the majority in a 2010 case called Respect Maine Pack. So you know, I just the court is literally defying its own procedural precedents. Do you th- okay, um, so do you think this is going to turn into the new normal where going forward yes. eventually this is normalized? Yes. And, and I think, and, 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 and separate from the fact that I don't think the court has the literal formal power to do this, the larger problem is that what is happening across the board in all these cases is the court is now front-loading merits decisions, right? And, and the, the reason why that's a problem, like, so, so I, you, you alluded at the top of the episode to how, how much I've been sort of attacked over the last week for my views on the shadow doc. And I want to talk about that for a second, but the, the sort of the common charges who cares as long as the court gets it right? Like if the court is protecting constitutional rights, how can that be bad? Um, and the response is because that's not that's not how our legal system is set up. Like, you know, we have prisoners who sit in jail while their appeals are pending, even if they have meritorious constitutional claims. And, the, you know, the reality is the exceptions for hearing emergency appeals um, are meant to be narrow entirely so that the court, as it likes to say itself, does not become a court of first view, that it's not its primary responsibility is as an appellate tribunal. Um, and so, you know, it's just the, the notion that like, it doesn't matter because we like the merits um, is something I find, you know, both incredibly myopic um, and also just wholly inconsistent with the structure of our court system. Well, unfortunately, it goes to the grain of the short termism that's been yes. so characteristic of every aspect. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Right. Um I, can, can, but can I, I say think, a word about the? Can I say a word about the criticisms? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to lead into that for you, just to tee you up. I think it's I think it's really gross that someone would question your religious beliefs or commitments because of your views about these Fed courts issues. That's it's obviously a non sequitur. It's also just inappropriate, and especially 
if it's coming from someone who self-conceptualizes as, as a person of faith, um, don't go around judging other people's faith, let alone dismissing them. So, so the, the, the particular provocation for this is two things that both involve the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Um, so back in March, there was a piece written in the National Review um, by Mark Rienzi, who's the president of the Beckett Fund, that was nominally a response to my House testimony in the House hearing on the shadow docket back in February, mm-hmm. but that repeatedly made all of these sort of insinuations about how I must not take religion very seriously and how, you know, my procedural objections are really just sort of hiding the fact that I don't think religious rights are all that important, that I don't think it matters if government's allowed to infringe religious liberty for years on end. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of let that go. Like that piece got no traction anywhere. Um, I sort of, you know, kept looking on Twitter to see if anyone even had linked to it and nobody had. So I was like, fine, whatever, this is one guy. Um, but then in this case that was decided on Friday, on Wednesday, the Beckett Fund filed an amicus brief that was basically like an attack on me. Um, and let me just, I just want to read a couple passages from it. So um, off the top, right, in explaining why they're filing the brief, and I've tweeted about this, like the brief is public record. Um, the brief says, I want to read this to you, Bobby. Um, let me find this. Do, do, do. Um, here we go. To hear some people tell it, there's something shady about the court's emergency docket. Indeed, they've even given it the moniker shadow docket. On this account, the court's willingness to rule on emergency applications endangers consistency and transparency, thus creating a fog of uncertainty about what its rulings mean. These are ivory tower objections (laughs) that partake more of the heaven of legal concepts than the actual experience of litigation. Every court in the country, except perhaps traffic court, provides for emergency proceedings because courts have to resolve time-sensitive and important disputes, including, among other things, persistent outrages to the Constitution. For academics focused solely on the Supreme Court, emergency proceedings may be foreign or seem unsettling because they do not conform to the ideal procedure governing a typical merits case. But for practitioners who have to seek temporary restraining orders or an emergency injunction, the Supreme Court's emergency procedures are unfamiliar only in their stringency. Like, they're basically saying I have no idea what I'm talking about because I'm an really ivory sh- tower academic. Even I can recognize that's a complete straw man. Obviously, you're not saying like what what is, what are these strange emergency procedures they are using? You're pointing out that we have this vast multi-decade set of practices about how the in emergency profess, uh, procedures are implemented. Can I, can I also point to the change? Can I also just point out in my defense, I also like actually practice before the federal courts on a regular basis. No, that and can't that, be, it can't be true, Steve, because you're a professor. It can't be true. Well, and Bobby, one of the cases the Beckett Fund brief relies upon is a Supreme Court case about stays on which I was co-counsel. So <laughs> thanks, guys. But that's not the worst part. So that was that was sort of typical like, oh, academics, they don't know anything BS. The worst part is later in the brief where they were again responding to me. They say, quote, that some observers think suppressing worship is not an emergency says more about how much they value freedom to worship than it does about the scope of the court's emergency powers, unquote. So first of all, um, that's not my position. I never said suppressing worship is an emergency. But second, thank you for telling me how much I value the freedom to worship. Like, who in the hell are you? Yeah, that's really unbecoming for a religious liberty organization to, to go ad hominem in at all, first of all, friends, Romans, countrymen, don't go ad hominem at all. Seriously, that aside, that's that's amateurish and inappropriate. And and I will add, as a Christian, which I assume these guys are self conceptualizing as, it's not appropriate from that perspective in particular. 
So I'm sorry that anyone said that to you at all. And I encourage you to try to let that bounce off the bounce off the surface. Oh no, I mean, listen, I, I, it has not, it has not sought, it has not uh, affected any of my views. I just, you know, we just went through um, a heated Supreme Court confirmation where there was hypersensitivity to claims that progressives were attacking Justice Barrett because of her religious beliefs, when in fact there was actually very little of that. Um, but, you know, I don't know why that, you know, it's appropriate for these same groups to be hypersensitive to that, which, by the way, I understand, and then to turn around and accuse anyone making a procedural argument they don't like of not taking religion seriously enough. I mean, I just think that's, you know, it's not just that it's ad hominem, Bobby, it's that it's hypocritical. Exactly. Well, so there's there's the... From a theological perspective, I'm not going to say it because I think it's self-evident. I'll just say that straw man arguments really are, are, they say more about the maker than the target. Uh, Ad hominem arguments, same thing. And, And to call into question other people's faith is not a place one ought to go unless one is making a substantive argument about theological matters. And that certainly wasn't this. It sounds like just an ad hominem. So well, I'll, I'll just say that I'll just say that. that I'll just say that there is a a certain law professor who shall not be named um, who wrote a blog post basically defending the brief without even pointing out the various places where it attacks me personally and not that I was a big fan of his to begin with but that did not help. I don't know about that one, but I'm again. I'm, <laughs> just I'm a trying. comment. All right, yeah. let's get frivolous because I'm 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 done. Yeah, yeah. On, a, on a happier note, well, is it a happier note? Can we say anything about the Mets? Is a happier note? By the way, the bullpen sucks. They have no offense. We do typically digress more than we do, but always end up getting frivolous with sports ball or musicals or nerd stuff. And it's that time. So if you've had enough of us already, thanks for listening. Um, so the Mets aren't getting to play much. It's really too soon to say, uh, I, you know, I, what, how about this? Uh, if you're Marcus Stroman, would you be so pissed about the other night when he gets rolled out for his nine pitches of glory? <laughs> so I'm not, there's something I'm not clear on. In the old days, home teams had a ton of control over whether they were going to start a game in conditions like the conditions that obtained in Queens yesterday. I thought that that changed a few years ago and that is actually now so the, home team has, the, home, the home team has input, but it's actually MLB's call because there are a lot of people on Twitter saying, you know, typical Mets, right? You know, wasting Stroman for nothing yeah, by yeah, having them throw, you know, 22 pitches and then have to sit for five days. And I'm, and I'm not sure it was the Mets call as opposed to MLB's call. I, I'm sure it probably wasn't, you know, it wasn't the Mets idea to do this. But yeah, that seems like a gross mismanagement. Um, just I'm kind of looking at the lineup right now, just kind of taking taking stock of who's off to a nice start, who's not. So people have been bagging on Lindor. He's doing fine. He's he's getting on base. He's you know he's. Uh, it's way too soon to say anything critical there. Um, Brandon Nimmo's start. It's pretty fun. That's 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 Nimmo's, not- Nimmo's, Nimmo's, um, you know Jeff McNeil. His numbers don't show it, but he is crushing the ball. He's just hit into a lot of hard outs. Yeah, I'd imagine the advanced uh, metrics on him are actually looking like uh, you know well hit balls, or whatever you call that stat. Is- what, what's remarkable about Jeff McNeil is the guy swings at the first pitch like forty percent of the time. That doesn't bode well. That doesn't bode well for you. Except except it's he hits over three hundred. Like I don't understand how that's possible. Um. Uh, DeGrom has been as advertised. 
Oh my gosh. Range. I mean, so I, I don't understand how it's physically possible that your average velocity increases every year. Like I just, I don't understand the math on that. That's pretty awesome. Um, notwithstanding the, the nine pitch wonder, uh, Stroman's actually looking really good so far. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's real, I mean, the Mets have played like a game and a half. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> any other insights? Uh, on the I just, I'm, I'm happy that baseball's back, but can yeah. we, um, can we, t- can we talk about Picard? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we have uh, the the sort of the the starter trailer for Picard season two. <laughs> the, teaser, the, the teaser trailer, and, and it is it's really funny, folks. So we were talking about this right before we hit record, and I mentioned Steve asked if I'd watched, and I said I, I had it on Twitter, but the volume was off, so I just but it had the subtitles, so I got that. Did I miss anything by not hearing the audio? He's like, you mean like John Delancey's voice? <laughs> so it's going to be a Q thing. That's Q. fantastic. I had no idea. I did not know. Oh, any other insights besides the the the? Cube? There are a couple of like there there are a couple of like um, um, Easter eggs in the in what you can see on screen during the teaser. Um, but to, like I, I have to say, like I I have not enjoyed Star Trek Discovery, but I really did enjoy season one of Picard. So I'm 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 looking forward to season two. Although I hope there's a little more. You know, I hope it moves uh, back to my common charge. Right, I like yeah, there. It moves slow and then it moves fast. Like pick a speed. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You do. You don't like the whiplash. You don't like the whiplash. That's all right. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. When is the launch? When when is this coming out? When is the launch? Um, I don't think it's till next year. Is that right? Picard season two release date. Uh, the internet says. Um, uh oh. The internet says, given the production is in the very early stages, don't expect season two to arrive. There isn't even a release date yet. Sometime in twenty twenty two. So there we go. Right. That's a long way off. But apparently, uh, all this came out on April fifth because I had not appreciated. Um, I had not appreciated like you know how like May fourth is Star Wars Day because it's May the Fourth. May the Fourth be with you. All right, I was just looking at this because I'm I'm trolling some stuff. So April fifth is first contact. contact <laughs> Forty two years from now. That's pretty. Yeah, we got to work it out for us. Well, first we have to have World War Three and have like hundreds of millions of people die. So I'm not sure I'm in a hurry for that. Yeah, let's 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 not go there. Okay, on on other stuff. So I mentioned to you that I'm finally at your urging. I'm finally. I'm not reading it. I'm listening to the uh, the original Thrawn trilogy from Star Wars, and I'm loving it. It's quite good, right? Timothy's on. Very impressed. Um, I'm towards the end of the third one now. Do you do you recall it all well enough to do any kind of uh, yes. assessment of it? Oh my gosh, I know, I know those books forwards and backwards. I've read them okay. like five times. So do you think, based on where I've gotten so far, I completely can see where it'd be delightful if they could do a, you know, a, a Mandalorian-style series on it. Could you retrofit it to fit with the continuity now by simply having Leia pregnant with one kid instead of two and having it be Ben Solo the whole time? And then kind of just like squeeze this in pre-First Order stuff? I guess, but then I mean, so you haven't gotten to the end of the third book yet. All right, so, so maybe I shouldn't be talking about let, it. Let me just say, let me just say this in in broad strokes. Um, insofar as it's already not well explained in the canon, how we get from the yeah. end of Episode Six to the f- rise of the First Order, yeah. it's there will be even more. Given how the book ends, let me just say that there will be even more problems. All right, retrofitting the sort of like getting from the end of um what the what's the last jet no what's the last what's the third book called the last command so um, I, would, I would say that they should take a page from comics and appreciate that sometimes continuity is just not worth it and if you've got a great story to tell 
yeah. and great characters and great. But plot. you know, I mean, Timothy Zahn's going backwards, right? So um, he just re- he just released the second book in the Thrawn um, in the original in the Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy. Um, so it's like a second trilogy. It's a third because there's a middle one. Dang it. All right. Should I will I like that one as well too? Yes. So I, I have not finished I have actually not so I finished the middle books. I have not finished which get you right up to Rogue One in the canon. Um, uh, I have not finished the first book, which I think is just called Thrawn. Um and, and I have not and, and I therefore have not gotten to the brand new second book, which I think is called Thrawn Colon Ascendancy. Okay, now here's a topic that we may need to take up. This could be really good grist for the mill for our two hundredth episode, but how about the utter absence of lawyers most of the time? Certainly, I don't think there's any legal in character whatsoever in any of the Star Wars uh, manifestations. And in Star Trek, it's extremely limited, right? So so in Star yeah, Wars, just, right, in Star Wars, it was a long time ago. So maybe it was before law. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. But they clearly, um, yeah. but no, there's, so there, there's a really dumb reference in either episode two or episode three to, you know, but after seven trials, the Galactic Supreme Court, dot, dot, dot. Like, there's actually a reference to that. Um, uh, like, old, one of the, one of the senior yes. Nubian advisors tells Amidala, like, I can't believe that after seven trials, the Galactic Supreme Court hasn't convicted, you know, whatever the name is. Clearly um, excessive original jurisdiction at the GSC. I think that's literally the only reference to, like, a legal system, um, oh, in the movies anyway. All right, um, Timothy's on if you're listening. Where are all the lawyers? But, you know, Star Trek, at least the original series and next generation both have courts martial um mm-hmm. in 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 at least one or two episodes i mean you know the the next generation episode the drumhead i actually think is a very good episode oh we talked about that once on this but, yes but but it's all done as if it's all like 19th century style you know yes. military in the field we're just the officers are going to have to dispense military justice because there's no lawyers around no courts where well they they don't have jags in starfleet where are the starfleet yeah, jags they're all in the star bases, right? That's 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 who's in the star bases. Um, but um, yeah, there's no there, on the ship. <laughs> there's no staff judge advocate on the Enterprise. Um, okay, now that's an episode title. There's no <laughs> 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 buffet of good times here. Um, the um, um, <laughs> is it is it Next Generation or is it DS Nine that introduces us to the Cardassian justice system? Uh, it's got to be DS Nine, right? I, don't, I just don't know if Next Generation got there first, right? And, the, you know, the, the verdict is pronounced at the beginning of the trial, and then they actually have the trial. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, I guess at that point, we have definitely hit our mark. We're at an hour and 17 minutes in county. There's no staff judge advocate on the Enterprise. That's good. We'll use that. And meanwhile, the, the actual USS Enterprise is like, what? <laughs> <laughs> there is well, would it be an SJA on a carrier? I guess it would be because it's yeah. probably yeah, you're the yeah. carrier the Navy, the Navy, flag for the the, Na- the Navy has SJAs. Yeah, but at what level though of, of ship would they be? Oh, good point. Like, but I guess if you're anywhere, it's on the carrier because that's going to be the flag for that task force. I was going to say the flag for the task force or for the fleet commander. Like I would think that the yeah. Anyway, by the way, All have right. you ever random question? You ever read uh, um, Herman Woke? Uh, yeah, Winds War and of- Remembrance. The well, Winds of War. War and War and Remembrance both. A long time ago. Yeah. I recently read them for the first time. Somebody had said, you know, you might you might enjoy rereading that. It's 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 quite a time capsule, obviously, written when it was, but um, but pretty fun. I, I'd be interested in hearing from readers whether people thought that was that was a, a good book or not. I liked it. Um, all right, I think that's a good reason to 
stop the show and move 100%. but um folks please do if you're interested come join us live next monday um as i said bobby and i have both tweeted the links and we'll do it a couple more times as the week goes on um until then right he's at bobby chesney i'm at steve underscore vladic uh we are at nsl podcast and if you have ideas for like reminiscence like topics that you'd like us to cover like you know looking back on the first you know, on the first four years five years first no four years four years four years I have no um, idea. On the first too long, um, let us know. Otherwise, uh, we will see you guys next Monday. Stay safe out there. Adios.